welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, today is our fourth episode in a year-long series about the skills of historical thinking, and it's about that terrifying moment which leads to actually writing about history, the question, and then the thesis. When we ask historical questions, we have to first ask a bigger question. What questions make historical sense of the documents in front of me? And then in the thesis, we try to answer that question, hopefully with a claim that's worth making. What good questions are and what they are not and what claims are worth making? That's what we'll be talking about today with Bill Caffaro. William Caffaro is the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Professor of History at Vanderbilt University, where for his sins, he is also Director and Professor of Classical Mediterranean Studies and Director of the Economics and History Program in the Department of History. He was last on the podcast on episode 103, talking about his book, Petrarch's War. And most recently, he has published Teaching History with Wiley. Bill, welcome back. You're a fan favorite. Mm. <laughs> it's great to, to be back, Al. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it, uh, you when I asked you, you immediately plumped for this one, boom, like that. Um, everyone had sort of one, two, or three on their list that it, you were like, this is the one I want to do. Um, why? why? What well, is it about the question and the thesis that, that inspires you? Well, be, I think because, and I think you would agree with me 100%, because as you just said, it's, it's kind of one of the most difficult things to do and the most important things to do. And it's not easy to teach people how to ask a historical question that is, is worthwhile and, and, and useful. Um, and as you know, I mean, uh, good history begins with a good question. Yeah, um, I w- generally say that sourcing is the hardest thing to teach, Um it's a, but for myself, I'm thinking of Tommaso Astarita, who now teaches Italian history at Georgetown and who was my TA second semester, my first year at Johns Hopkins. He gave me a B and I was so indignant because I had written a beautiful history paper, which I'm really glad that I got a B out of it. I don't want to read it ever again because I had no question. I just told a narrative of something. Um, and that's what I thought history was. And it's very hard. It was took years for me to realize that wasn't what history was. Yeah, and it makes it makes it no more easy that different people will tell you different things about how to do it. But at base, it has to have a thesis, right? And that's the thing that is difficult to find. And so you read around in the sources. At least this is what we tell our students. I tell my students, um, and then go to primary sources and try to come up with a question that is a is is, is a viable question, a kind of a question that people want to know the answer to. You know, I always, I jokingly, uh, you know, I, I don't say this to my students, but I say this sometimes to my colleagues, Benedetto Croce, for example, since I'm an Italianist, he once wrote that the only good questions are those that resonate with the present, hmm. you know, and insofar as you know, I work on the era of the Black Death. I've never been current in my entire career. Now I am in the worst possible way. It has um, to happen sometime. And the question then, I, you know, people have asked me, you know, well, what do you think about the impact of pandemics since you should know something about it? And that's where it becomes kind of squirrely, right, Al? Because in the sense that the Black Death and COVID-19 are not the same thing, right? 
and understanding the difference between the two and still making the former or, or the Black Death relevant is is critical, right? Because it had its own set of set of things. So historians are in the business of context and also asking the kinds of questions that people in the modern world would like to know the answer to. Um, because, you know, the, the great history of of, of, uh, of of historical thought itself is about, you know, history as a lesson. You know, that's what the old, go back to the 15th century writers would say, history is useful because it serves as a lesson for the present. So when you're thinking of writing a paper, you would not necessarily think about a lesson for the present, perhaps, but you might think about something that is, you know, a good question, a kind of the kind of a question that has a thesis uh, in it, like, you know, why something was. Maybe that's why you got a, uh, a, a the grade. And I know I, I myself, I mean, I remember when I started, people said, you're very journalistic. You write what happened, you know? Well, that's part of being being historical. You have to look at sources. And I was told in graduate school, never go beyond those sources, you know, which I think is a very important thing that students need to learn because sometimes they, they want to make a bigger point than they actually have the information to do, uh-huh. you know? And, um, and then and have a kind of a, a basic thesis. And I would also go so far as to say, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a medievalist, so I am, uh, you know, de facto irrelevant. Um, as I tell my employers, you know, at, at every opportunity, I didn't do this in order to be current. And with the <laughs> pandemic, suddenly I am, and I find that very disconcerting. You're worried um, about war and disease, Bill, There's not, and economics. Yeah. Those are very, those are always current. And that, and that's the thing, you know. I mean, in the distant past, whether or, or in the more recent past, as you know from your own work, um, there are there are analogs with what's going on today, and so on. And so, but that I mean, but that in itself doesn't make a good question. But what a good question, in my opinion, is is also to keep in mind that sometimes the most obvious question um, or something relating to something big is a good question. Like, for example, I always use the example of, I've been working on Dante, and you would think, my goodness, everything that needs to be said has been said about Dante. Or certainly everything that needs to be said has been said about the Black Death. I've found in my own experience that often when the topic is big, the presumptions are even bigger. Uh-huh. And the closer you get to it, the more you can actually nuance it. So, um, Very nice. You know, I want to I wanna go back to a little early, and then I want to work back up to that, because the um, you said uh, you used the my favorite W word for why, and um, okay, obviously the five paragraph essay is not the only way to write an essay. There's been there's been much ink spilt recently about how bad they are. To my mind, it's just a it's just a first step. It's just getting away of people thinking about them. And for all, I've had a lot of nineteen year olds who should know how to do this by now, but they're like, "Oh my god, a five paragraph! No one ever taught me the five paragraph essay before." So, mm-hmm. having said that, likewise, I would say to students, "Don't who questions uninteresting? Answer it with a fact. If I can answer it with a fact, it's not a good historical question." Do you do you go along with that? I mean, I agree a hundred percent with that, and I have to say, um, you know, I think Al, you and I have read some of the same literature about that five because at some high schools they've been doing that sort of five paragraph sort of summation of the reading, and so what's happened is I've come into I've come in contact with a lot of students who think that a summation of something is the same thing as writing a historical paper. I think a summation of something can be used effectively if you want to keep students on on the ball with respect to the reading and have a good discussion class. But I actually, I think, and I, I'm, I'm sure you agree with me, I, I take longer 
thematic papers. I, I actually give the students questions that are more why questions mm-hmm. in addition to what. I think you need to say something about what, but mm-hmm. I also think that you need to kind of have a thesis, something that brings it together, a reason for why all of this stuff um, is, 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 is important. Yeah, you know? I struggle with that. I provide a why question so they could see that why questions were important. Yeah, and often my questions for undergraduates are comparative questions, too. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to compare sources to understand what the uh, author is trying to get at, you know. And then that case, you know, because I do the Middle Ages and there are so many, there actually I have so fewer sources than, say, you would have. Uh, for them to read. I have to re- have them read very carefully and I have to remind them as you do as well, you know, that what's not said is also important in a source as, as it, as it is, as, as what is said, yeah, you know, that was... what are you expecting to see, but you don't see in the sources and stuff. And again, this gets to the sort of larger way of putting this all, all together. Um, uh, we have a course at Vanderbilt where we have, it's called a capstone, and where we're supposed to actually programmatically teach people how to write research papers. And that's really, so So, so we have a kind of a, a schema. Now, whether that's the right schema or not is open to question. But what we generally do with our students is we have, have them read around in the secondary literature. Um, uh, this is how they formulate their question, mm-hmm. you know. And then we have them read a little bit around in the primary sources that might be referenced in the secondary ones. And then we have them write a short little bit on the secondary sources and how they work together and how the primary sources might then work and then formulate the question from there and then mm-hmm. proceed forward. It's a, it's a three semester class. So what they do Sounds is like that kind it. of formula. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a kind of an unusual thing, but um, it, it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting way of kind of getting people to think historically, as you say, and to think critically. And I think one of the things you and I both are very concerned about is that students often don't think critically. Um, they know how they think history is about memorization of a bunch of facts and presenting them. And, you know, we have some popular examples of history that ne- don't necessarily uh, ask critical questions and do critical thinking. And they actually just describe what's well, there. This, right? So, this gets back to Dante. Um you know, I, um, well, a couple things first, before we get to the, the summary essay, um, I thought I probably have used this, uh, on the podcast before, but I think it was hundreds of a hundred episodes ago, a uh, friend of ours, um, who worked for an intelligence agency would get smart kids, uh, from places like Vanderbilt. Uh, and he would ask them for a paper on X and they would come back and they would say, you know, most people believe this about X. And he would say, no, what's your opinion on X? And my opinion, and they would get that my opinion is that most people believe that, you know, this about, and this would go round and around and around. He had, what he had discovered was it was very difficult to get junior analysts uh, in an intelligence agency whose product might conceivably be read by, you know, cabinet secretaries or the president hard to get them to come up with their own opinion. And it wasn't, he realized, of course, they're, they're, they're brand new. It's not because they're involved in covering their butts in best bureaucratic fashion. It's they really had a hard time in getting to a thesis statement. So he actually started teaching a course and coming up with analytical thesis statements, which kind of made me a little embarrassed that, because uh, if this is like, this is what historians, this is what we should be doing. This is this Absolutely. is our thing, you know. 
Does that surprise you? (laughs) Yeah, no, it doesn't. And in fact, I mean, that's why when you say, you know, I was I was eager to do this is because it's the most difficult thing I think I do. Yeah. You know, and that's why I wanted to to talk about it because I'm not sure I have the magic solution. But what you just described is a wonderful thing because trying to get people to think critically and then give uh, a thesis type statement is not easy. You know, sometimes I tell my students, you know, think about yourself as a lawyer, which is easy, I guess, in history for some of my students to do. But you're presenting a case, you know, mm-hmm. and the case is, you know, you're trying to convince a jury about something. You know, and that requires bringing the evidence that you have and that you've read to bear for a particular argument. I even go so far as to say, and Al, you may disagree with me, you don't even have to agree with that argument necessarily. You may, your client may be guilty, but, you know, put together something that is actually your opinion, your thesis based on what you see. You know, I try to reduce it to that. And I think in some ways that does translate to to students, but I don't want to pretend that I have any more success than anybody else. In some ways, I feel I have less because one of the things I cannot convey to students is the love that people like me have for ancient language. Uh And that's part of the source base that we use. And then, you know, when you're dealing with primary documents that are in another language, then making a thesis becomes even more difficult because you've got all this disparate stuff. Uh And I, I try and tell them that though it still has to be focused into your interpretation of documents. I've even gone so far as sometimes telling my students, be a ruler, be a king, be a queen. Don't be afraid um, to interpret what you see. I mean, because that's the whole process of doing history, right? It's taking the facts and interpreting them. You don't have to be right. Um, but you have to be, um, you know, very, very careful with the sources to, to be um, to respect them in such a way as to be accurate as you can possibly be. Everything you say needs to be backed up with evidence, you know. But mm-hmm. it's just, if it's just evidence and it doesn't have a thesis or it doesn't ultimately come to a point about why. Sometimes I ask them questions by giving them the contrary opinion and then say, "What do you think about this?" which sounds a little bit like what you were you were describing. I mean, some of my questions, I mean, again, in most of my undergraduate classes, I have them just do regular. I do the, I, I, I don't like the five paragraph thing. It's true. And I have to say when I was DUS for a brief, well, for three long years, actually, it wasn't so brief, but I mean, when I was DUS. DUS meaning? A director of undergraduate studies, you know, which is like everyone has to serve a term. This is not a distinction in any way. No, you, no but I mean, you get, you get pushed on the hand grenade eventually. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I've been around long enough that I've been on a couple right now, as you said, the classical Mediterranean studies is driving me crazy. But I mean, uh, you know, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, students would come in and I would say to them, you know, most of the young faculty like to use short two page papers based on a reading and just summarize it. And then the students will talk about it and they'll say, we have wonderful class discussions. And I've asked some of the students as they came into my office, you know, about their classes. or I said, what do you think of these short papers? Because just about everybody uses them. And they say, this is great. It keeps me up in the reading and stuff. And I said, what do you think of long papers? And then almost invariably, almost everybody uh, would say, oh, I hate them. And I'd say, what's so bad about them? He goes, well, because I have to sustain the thesis over like seven to nine pages. So me being me, I thought... I'm going to keep that. <laughs> I'm going to throw in some of those short ones because my young colleagues are right. You yeah. know, it's good to keep them up to date. We need to find ways. I use quizzes. I use yeah. various things, but also that short thing. Like what I do, actually, I, I, I tweaked it into try to actually assess a source, a primary source, and write about it. You know, so there is a kind of a thesis embedded in that. 
So let's um, go to you. I've been reading the, let's say, not the oeuvre, but the opera omnia, it's more appropriate, of Cafero. I, I, I dip back into uh, John Hawkwood. I've been looking again at, at, at Petrarch's, uh, Petrarch's War. So I'm, I'm curious about um, the questions that you came to uh, to come up with these books. Um, so you were studying with Michael Mallet. Um, he was at, he was there when I was yeah he was there for a time at, at uh, Yale he was not a part of the um, part of my formal thesis committee which is kind of would probably surprise you if I told yeah, you who was that, on it that was that, well I'm surprised that he wasn't on it because he was he had said he did he did mercenaries in Italy and he suggested I do the topic absolutely I my first topic was Dante in the Byzantine East by the way just for the, wow that was my prospectus. Uh, my advisors were Pelican, Boswell, and Miss Skimmin, uh, and that, and and my closest, um, I mean, my 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 advisor the whole time was Yaroslav Pelican. So really, I did, I did, yeah, I did church history. I mean, my first field was was Greek and Latin patristics, if you can believe it. I which actually is, I can't, but it makes now I understand why how you ended up with that. Yeah, okay, that's right. I reinvented myself as I came out of graduate school, which I do not recommend to anybody else. I am very fortunate and I'm very aware of it to even have a job. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so I mean uh but anyhow, I mean that 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 was my background, um, but the, the the way I came up with with my question, my first question was about uh, I was I was interested when I went to graduate school in being a Byzantinist, but they told me that I couldn't get a job, and I thought mm-hmm. for all the language training that that takes, yeah. and I was undergoing, that didn't make any sense. So, but my big my big interest was just from reading again generally was a big question, which is like okay, there's a Byzantine emperor, and there's a German person who considers himself emperor. And there are two emperors at the same time. And how is this playing out in Italy, where mm-hmm. the German emperor has the title to the first, to the top part of Italy, the northern part of Italy, um, but also the Byzantine emperor has title to the entire empire as well. So the point, I mean, to use the Latin, they say translatio imperii, you know, the translation of the idea of empire from the Roman Byzantines to uh, to Charlemagne, going back to Charlemagne and so on. And I was wondering how, you know, how Greek was Italy? If you've read Dante, you realize the one thing that's very, very conspicuous about him is that he never mentions Byzantium. Now, for a lot of people, they figure, wait, it's way out there. But, you know, you it's not way out there. The Mediterranean is a very small place. So this always bothered me. It still does. I still write occasionally about that. I'm, I'm, part, of, I'm part of that group so that this does Dante. So this is, I mean, we already got lots of questions. You got one is, you know, how does this work out between the two em- emperors in in Italy? How Greek yeah. is how Greek is Italy? Why doesn't Dante mention Byzantium? These are good questions. I mean, and, he mentioned and, and Greeks, like, but they're mostly classical Greeks. They're, exactly, yeah, they're all classical Greeks. Exactly. And I and I have I have various theories about this, and I've written articles about this, not books and stuff. But I, I I actually conceived of this as my original project, and then at the very end, I tried to get to. This is a very uh, you know typical story of being a graduate student. I tried to get the two professors whom I, who who remain nameless, who are both very well known, to try to work together with me to do this. One was an expert on Dante, the other one was you know Yaroslav Pelikan, who was my advisor. They refused to work together. And so I had to stop and think, what did I want to do? And I thought, you know what? I like math and I like the idea of taxation 
and economic things. And the one thing I thought was interesting is like, what's the distinction? And here's a question, again, that I would recommend for people. What's the distinction between what we call medieval and what we call Renaissance? It sounds, Al, like a ridiculously stupid that question. Sounds, now, see, that's interesting because that sounds so broad. That's the kind of thing that a freshman would come to me and they would say, oh, well, I want to talk about the difference between the medieval and Renaissance. Or like, yeah. what's the difference between like early Republic and like antebellum America? I was like, oh, God, no. You know, please don't do it's that. It's too big. And, I mean, uh, big. even and, – and, and it wouldn't be any different if they were like a second-year graduate student or a first-year uh, first undergraduate. It still sounds too big. Yeah, and I, and I think it also shows, again, something that we have to make clear to also students, that understanding and writing a good question or writing a book is part of a process and that it alters. Your question alters as you move forward and you see what's possible, what's not possible and stuff. I would only say in my defense for that kind of broad question is that I started again, like I mentioned, as a math major. So these kinds of like basic things always stood with me. Uh-huh. And then, you know, and for me in particular, as I started, became apparent and through my wife, by the way, not because. I'm Italian American, but uh, I started becoming more interested in Italy, and um, and I thought, you know, I I thought, look at Siena. There's a there's a large literature on Siena because it has a wonderful archive. And it, whatever else you say about that city, it seems quintessentially medieval, whatever that means. And then you've got the neighbor an hour away, Florence, which is quintessentially Renaissance, whatever that means. So my aim for my dissertation was to study both of these places and to see where the point of separation happened. You know, when, because they were both, you know, both of them had the great artist Giotto, and then you've got Simone Martini in the early 14th century. And then they kind of diverged. So that yeah. was my plan. And you can see from my oeuvre to the extent that I have yeah. one, um, that I actually have not answered that question. <laughs> <laughs> because that question, the good thing about these questions, Al, is that they raise other questions yeah. that are also very well, important. But I love that because fundamentally you're asking one of the simplest questions, Errol. Why is this place, Siena, not like this other place nearby, Florence? Um, exactly. What's the difference? Um, Suzanne Marchand, who was on talking about porcelain, in Eastern European history and porcelain manufactories, she uh, said on the podcast, and I have to have her I have to have a clip from this uh, as a supplemental uh, bonus episode. She was just going to all these museums in Middle Europa, and they all had rooms of porcelain. And she was like, "Why do they have rooms of porcelain?" Yeah, and yeah. it turns out, of course, that this was a fantastic question to ask, which intersected, um, you know, basically business and economic history. Uh, questions of state manufacturing and state-directed art, artistic endeavors and technology, uh, a history of technology. All these things came together in these state port, um, manufactories of porcelain. Yeah, but it was just she was just looking around. She was just noticing what was in plain in plain sight, which is so often the the best question to ask. Exactly, exactly. And then, like I said, and in her case, obviously, it also it became more nuanced as she went forward. And my my question, I mean, I, I, I that was the question of my dissertation prospectus. I went to Siena to see what was there. And I was shocked out to find that when I looked at the um, actual sources, which was no small thing, because they're in Latin, and they're in paleography, and I had to learn all that uh, on site. Of which something I'm, I'm out of, but I can't, but I can't boast <sighs> about it because nobody wants to know. But it was pretty difficult. But I, I learned. No, it no, no. Well. I, I, I want to know because that was, of course, terrifying to me. The idea that really, in the end, you have to go to Milan, Siena, wherever, 
and you're going to have you can take all you can take a paleography course, but in the end, it all comes down to being in the archive, looking at that person's Latin and yes. that person's handwriting. That's right. And now I've I, you know I now there's nothing I actually love more, and in fact, I probably impeded my career because I continue to do it even into a late age, where most I'm the oldest guy in the archive, where I used to be the youngest. But I have to say that I have never been so scared. As yeah. the first time I walked up the stairs into that archive, you know, I mean, because I thought, my goodness, you know, here I am. It's a, I have to speak another language just to get the documents. Then I have to read another language translated into English for another one. And I, you know, and I've never seen it before, but I did. And the one thing that shocked me, actually, I was, you know, I thought to myself, I had written a prospectus thinking that what the difference between one place and another had to do with government. Because we have that famous fresco by, uh, you know, Lorenzetti, uh, right. And I thought the bad, good government is what made Siena work. And then bad government must have brought it down. And at the same time, there was a good government really taking over in Florence, or so I believe. Okay. And so I was going to do this whole thing. First of all, I realized you just can't walk into two archives and master them. As a, as a, and I didn't even get a, <clears throat> a major fellowship. You know, I just got some money from my department. I mean, I tried to get a Fulbright and I didn't get one, you know. So here it is. You know, there's life after not getting something like there that. There is. He's well, the Gertrude Conway Vanderbilt professor of history. So that just shows you that they should have invested in you. But, you know, you put your heart and soul into the work that we do. That's what we do. That's what we're. That's why we love it. And, you know, when I was looking at the, the, the actual documents, I couldn't. I could not pass over the fact that the biggest expense for, and it did go to Florence as well, was for war. Yeah. And then I looked at the literature and I, I noticed one thing else that nobody wanted to talk about war. They still don't. And maybe it's because of Vietnam in America, and maybe it was because of World War II in Europe. I don't know. But nobody wants to be known as a military historian. And I thought to myself, I, I didn't even, if you look at the people I studied with, there's not, apart from Michael Mallet, for one class, um, I have no background whatsoever. No one can ever accuse Yaroslav Pelikan. No one ever did accuse Yaroslav Pelikan of being a military <laughs> historian. Uh, <laughs> And John Boswell did sexuality, and that's what I—that's what I TA'd for. And so I had to really reinvent myself because—and here's an example of how one writes a paper: because you come up with a theory, you come up with a question, but then you have to have the flexibility when you're confronted with the documents to change that theory. I—I I thought it would work really beautifully if I would just do the Lorenzetti thing. And frankly, if I'd written that book instead, it would have sold better. Yeah. My career would have taken off. Instead, people started telling me. I remember my first job interview with Ohio State, which didn't come close to hiring me, said, so let me ask you about con these condottieri. Aren't they German bakers? I remember thinking, oh, you mean condottieri, by the way. I mean, you know, I'm thinking, you know, but the whole thing is, even to this day, Al, people ask me, you know, I mean, ask Bill. He knows all about, um, about condottieri. And whenever there's a discussion in Machiavelli, I'm invited. And I, you know, I don't even know Machiavelli very well. I mean, if, if it were Tertullian, I could talk more <laughs> because I still remember it because I was young when I did that. And so, I mean, the point was, I mean, and I'm an egregious example, and this is why I try to tell my students to have a real idea of what you want to do because it brings you there. But, of course, they can't share in the experience of an archive, but when they start reading the sources, they have to be flexible enough yeah. to respond to them. So the, right? you, start, you start out with the best questions you can with the understanding that you're going to come up with new ones. 
you're you're going to have to keep on asking questions because those other questions are going to fade away and they're going to be replaced with something else. Yes. Everything yes. has to be held very lightly in our hands. And that's, that's really hard, it turns out, especially, I mean, let's leave it outside professional because now there are immense pressures to come up with a brilliant changing idea in the second semester of your first year as a graduate student so that you can get a job. And let's just leave that aside. Um, this is about asking any historical question, really asking any question that involves a thesis statement, like those young analysts in an intelligence agency, is to keep on asking, realizing the first set of good questions that you ask will then have to be linked. There will be many others that you're going to have to proceed through before you come to your final set of questions. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I couldn't couldn't agree more. And I think the good thing about these questions is that they're generative too, because mm -hmm. you ask this question and then when you try to answer it, you realize you haven't quite answered it and there's more to this question. I still haven't given up on the idea of medieval versus Renaissance. And if you look at things I've edited and so on, you'll see that I'm I'm constantly trying to figure out the difference between medieval and Renaissance. And I'm also trying to figure out the economies of these two different places and how they work. That's what I'm currently working on. And when I look at my notes, you know, Al, now they're like 30 years old, you know, I um, mean, you know, they're great, but, but I'm still, I'm still working. What I like about this, I'd only say is that if you come up with a big idea and like, and, and not be afraid to take on, you know, a main street topic, you know, main, mainline topic, um, you know, then there are all these other things you can do along the way. Like my career has been like, let me pursue this aspect of it, pursue this aspect of it. Different questions that came up with that I thought were important that people need to know. But I'm still I still got my eye on the original question from my thesis that I still haven't been able to answer. <laughs> so you, I hope to live long enough to do so. <laughs> you may, Well, so do I, because uh, <laughs> you have a lot of interesting questions that need to be answered. And that what's amazing is, of course, no one else. Well, people do. I mean, um, Catherine Fletcher is on the podcast. She's talking about the beauty and terror in the Renaissance. She's she's getting close to you. She talks a lot about yeah. art, art and warfare. Um, does, yeah. um, but you said about you have thirty year old notes. Um, I realize sometimes I'm um, I'm a very I'm like a magpie when it comes to notes. I've got notebooks all over the place. I'm always using a new one, and um, Zotero, which. I mean, they should advertise as much as I do, as advertising as I do for them. They changed my life. I, I wouldn't have written my doctoral thesis without it. Um, they, uh, you can get, I'm beta testing the app, the new app for the iPhone. It's fantastic. Uh, recommend it. Mm -hmm. uh, and soon we're going to have the, like, we're gonna have the best ever. It'd be so awesome. I just imagine being in a medieval, I can't wait to go back to the archives now for lots of reasons, but now that I can just like take a picture of the thing and put it in Zotero right. and then go back and transcribe it later. Fantastic. Um, but um, what I, um, now I've completely lost my train of thought. Oh my God. Um, but the question is, is how do you preserve notes? Because I, yeah. I, I was talking to a friend of mine, distinguished professor at UVA. He keeps a journal where he writes down questions and where he thinks through questions and stuff like that. And I think that's a brilliant idea. I've started to try to do that uh, because otherwise I've got stuff everywhere. And I think I come up with a new question, but it's actually a question I came up with 20 years ago that I'm just kind of half remembering. Or I say to myself, and this wasn't when I turned 50, this was happening before. You know, I had a really good question the other day, but I forget what it was. So how do you deal with that? Because, you know, we're always, the, the, the brain is always on. We're always generating questions. 
Yeah, but you know, I actually do it in a kind of mechanical way. I always, I mean, my students will say, I jokingly say, uh, inspiration is bourgeois, and it's not something that I, I try to try to get. So what I do is every morning I work at about the same time, no matter what the circumstances are, and I, and what I, when I come come up with an idea, like for instance, I'm leaving the archive, and I come with an idea. Um, what I do is I write it down. And I try to sort of flesh it out a little bit. So I have on my computer, I do this on the computer, I have sort of like half or no, not that half would be giving me too much credit, but it would be like uh, sort of a couple of paragraphs about an idea. And I have many of them now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm over 60 at this point. And so I have so many of these and I know now that I am not going to be able to pursue all of them, but that's how I keep track of them. I always, and it often is when I'm working on, well, I don't know how do, it is with you. Do you do I'm this? Me, I'm sorry to ask a technical thing here, but Dermot McCullough, who was in my college at, uh, in Oxford, who's the eminent, mm -hmm. uh, Sir Dermot McCullough, eminent church historian, mm -hmm. he had mm -hmm. just one word document. I, he wrote his entire Thomas, all the notes for like his book on the history of Christianity were in one word document. God knows how many along it would be if he printed out. He would just do searches for stuff in it. I, I don't know how you can organize things like that. Obviously, no one could ever possibly write a book who organized their research in such a way. Oh, wait, no. he has. But uh, do you just sit down like you're coming out of the archive, you get the idea, you sit down, you put it into one word document or do you have like umpteen of 10,000 word documents with different stuff. On. I, I, I don't have that many at all because I don't have that many ideas, but <laughs> I do, put them, I do put them into word documents when I, I would, I would give it a title. Like for example, you know, since I read a lot of these like records that are for financing um, wars and financing all different things, names like Boccaccio, Petrarch suddenly come out and I think, oh, this would be an interesting article about Boccaccio. And I start writing down things and, and then, but, but just a little bit. Um, I, I've also, for the 30-year project that I have, I actually do have one of those things that sounds a bit like what you were describing where I have, like, I don't know, something like uh, 300 single-spaced pages that I, I can't even follow. And it's actually counterproductive because when you get all that, you feel you have to read it over again. You got to watch out. You don't, you, you don't get yourself all bollocked up about it because you can't say everything about anything. You only can say a certain amount. And mm -hmm. a lot of writing is also being rhetorically solid. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I err on the side of having all the information and, and you got to be careful about that. So my system, I, I could tell you one thing that makes me a little different from other people, I think, is that I, I'm, and I maybe the same as you, I use notebooks. Um, I mean, I start all my ideas. I go to the archive whenever I have an idea. I start by writing it down in pencil on, on this kind of paper. Well, that, know, that's, on, that's on, on true, a true archivist, archive, archive rat. Uh, you can only use a pencil in an archive anyway. So right. you, you end up doing a lot of stuff on pencil. And I, 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 I put a lot of emotional energy into finding the best possible mechanical pencil. Um, far, far too much. Uh, 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 but, uh, but, and, and also I've gotten to the point where I actually gave up for a while. Uh, I, I, I've tried dictation software, which I kind of like sometimes. Um, and uh, uh, it helps me get stuff down. But also I write the second draft longhand. And yeah. uh, I, I write a lot with longhand and I get, I get really superstitious about the pen too. Um, but I, I don't want to go to like the computer until like the third draft. 
Well, I, I, as I said, you know, what I do is because I spend, when I go to an archive, I actually take all my notes in pencil. And I remember some woman who must have been over 80 came up to me and for some reason just hugged me. And I wondered why she did that. And then as she left, she said something to somebody in Italian that you're the only other person. This, he's the only other person that still uses Because in the archives now, they prefer you use a computer because uh-huh. then you don't touch the documents at all. And I, I use my pen, pencil all the time. So I'm very old-fashioned. So when I do come back with an idea from the archive, I tend to type it out. And I think through by, by actually writing down the notes from the archive, it's kind of a Zen-like process where I'm actually processing the material I see. A lot of stuff I have to copy. We have to copy because we don't have the money, the time to spend a lot there. So, I mean, a lot of, I, of it I do, but I do, I, I'm very deliberate in how I do it. And so some of the ideas I get from the archive, I always make sure when I come home, I write something uh-huh. that, that kind of puts it together. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the situation that the next time I show up in the archive, I have a plan. You know, I just don't I just don't want to let it let it go. But I have to say that, you know, I mean, when it comes to drafts of things, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's it's it, it, it slows me down clearly. Um, but I, you know, I type like a former math major too. I use two fingers and I prefer to write things out because I like the way, and I'm very particular about my pencil. I like these particular pencils because they're, 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 they're good. And I, I also am very particular about my pen and my wife's even more so she uses a fountain pen. I started using Um, a fountain pen too. I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting really crazy. I, I know. And and sometimes green ink, just to show that I'm also insane. Uh, I'm probably on the verge of writing letters to the Times of London. Um, uh, so I uh, so we've talked about questions, generating questions, saving questions. Um, this applies to, I mean, I, I, I know one of these days I've always wanted to talk to a detective on historically thinking, and I know that detectives have the same mnemonic, they have the same process about looking through their notes, looking all the rest of that stuff. It's not just on TV shows, forget the board thing, but they they transcribe their notes and look through them in order to see things that they missed. It's the same process. Thesis, the thesis statement, uh, something that used to, uh, uh, two words that used to create a worm of fear deep in my bowels. Um, I... The best explanation I could ever find, I want to see what you think of this too, for teaching undergraduates was the thesis statement is the best answer you can come up with to your best question. I think that's well put. I really do. And understanding that it's contingent based on the continuing research that you're going to do. You read something. And I think you also said something very important, rereading. I mean, when I read something the first time, you know, I wish my concentration were better, but when I read it the second time, I have an opinion about it, you know, and then that helps me get a thesis statement. And then that's thesis statement, as you said, it's something that ultimately needs to be then answered. Um, and I, uh, I just would tell my students that they should keep an open mind, have a thesis, and it's not difficult to do when you think about it, because we all have opinions, but it's based on substantive reading, Right. And then, um, you know, uh, be flexible enough to change it as you read the primary sources more, more carefully, because, you know, we're in the business of primary sources. We we um, and, 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 you know, having assumptions going in is a good idea, um, but also be willing to change those those assumptions. I know that's been my whole career. I mean, I, I, I could never imagine uh, I would be associated with war in any way. Uh, but, you know, that, that's what the documents say, you know. <laughs> I mean, 
And it would be, to me, it it would seem silly to, you know, continue with this wonderful thesis. And I know people who have and have gotten much further in their career because they have, you know, because it's somehow it's what people want to hear, you know. Um, But but I actually think that, you know, a good thesis question, like I said, is is one that, you know, you could tell your parents and they would understand it, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, But it's also one that will invariably change as you do more more research. So you have to be both, you know, you know exact and exacting from the start but also flexible in a certain way as you go forward but um that's so um, hard <laughs> it's, it's it's very it's, hard but, you know it's all about the process you know Al, i always tell my students you know if you're thinking of I me mean, because all my students run I, I run when people chase me you know yeah. that's about it <laughs> but it's like you know but but they run and they do all these things and it's like i mean if you're going to run you're not going to run a marathon tomorrow it's part of a process yeah. writing is a process thinking making a thesis is a process you have to start with a question the best informed question given the time limit you have to make one but it's a process right i mean even if you were becoming a medieval monk i would tell my students there are manuals by benedict of nursia which tell you how to be holy you can't just show up in a monastery and be holy you have to go through a series of exercise you know it could be Loyola who describes it it's like military training uh-huh. you know and so I mean what they have to understand that writing where we invest our entire soul in it the first time around you know and people are afraid of it that it's a process you're going to write something poorly even if you have a good thesis but yeah. then you're going to I mean the best advice I got as an undergrad was from a professor who wasn't even my own I had taught his son um, in the school down the road in high school, believe it or not. And he took me aside and he said, let, let me tell you how to write a thesis. You know, And he said, the way you write a thesis is, first of all, come up with a question that is not obscure. Go, go with something like, you know, you might, might think, I don't want to talk about Erasmus because Erasmus has been done to death. Do Erasmus. People have heard of it. You've got a better chance get a, getting a job. This was a practical. The other thing he said, separate reading and writing from each other. Writing is messed, is, is difficult, and the, all of the stuff comes to you at once. And unless you're a very uh, a specific and very unusual person, uh, you won't be able to get all your ideas down uh, coherently. And then once you've but, – but, but he, he said continue maybe four, five, six days. Get the full idea out no matter how ugly it is. Then print it out look at it over, and then go through it. Because reading, you'll see all the mistakes, and then you can go and then start writing again. And actually, you know, I have to say, I, I wish I would follow that more often. <laughs> but when I was doing, doing my thing, you know, it's funny. We get this advice, we hear it, it's oh, important, yeah. and then we forget all about it as we go forward. Well, I mean, it, it's the – so we, the way that uh, my undergraduate worked, uh, uh, people taught – People who I admire, uh, people who influence, people whose uh, asides I remember to this day. Nevertheless, they taught it in ways that I would never ever do myself. Now we did it, and you know, I mean, it's and, and for all I know, this is how things work at Vanderbilt. We had a midterm, we had a final, we had a big paper. That was it. Um, I wouldn't imagine ever. I I couldn't do that now. Uh, and one of the things I wish I had done more of was requiring basically drafts of big research papers um, in order to – so we had a John Baldwin, late John Baldwin, professor of uh, Nor- the, Nor- the Norman French in the northern France, yeah. the professor of northern France, uh, who says, you need to write it and print it out and look at it the cold light of the morning. 
which I always remember. You know, that's a very Baldwinian statement. Um, of course, when you've got a final paper, it's due December 7th. And you know, like most Hopkins students, we were writing on December 6th. And uh, when I was a very good boy, I wrote it like on November 28th or 24th and did that. And I did that once in a while. I guess that's why I ended up in graduate school. Uh, but um, uh, but it's hard to do when you do it like that. And so I, I think that in, in explaining to people that a draft, and the other thing is, of course, we didn't, I didn't understand then and no one understands now, a rough draft isn't like leaving everything out, you know, leaving only putting in verbs and nouns. Um, it's right. like actually right. your first best attempt, you know, That's okay. Right. You know, just put in, you can put in a footnote. The footnotes can be vague, but write your first best attempt. That's your rough draft. Um, yes. and that, that's part of drafting. I don't know how we're gotten into this from thesis statements, but the, the fact is, and here's the hard part is, especially for when you're thinking in depth about a topic, you can do that rough draft and realize your question wasn't good. And That's your exactly, and your thesis statement that. wasn't good, and then you have to you have to sacrifice your little darling. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That and that I, I think I think that's a wonderful exercise for people. And as you say, I mean, one of the things we haven't really discussed is that when we're dealing with undergraduates, they do things at the last moment. Of course, you know, I, I, as we to, did, I, th I think. But you know, that's yeah, that's, exactly. I, I would not exclude myself. And so it's difficult when it comes to like formulating a thesis. The best way to do that is to do that in advance and then do the rough draft. But most students that I teach anyway will just do everything at the very end and, and try to put it together. But what we try to do is tell them, you know, a research paper and just a regular paper that we assign where we just give them some sources that we want them to compare are not necessarily the same thing and that it require the first one we try to schedule in uh, that they have to hand in a draft in advance. And I know they do that in my classes, I make sure. And then I give them my opinion and I meet with them individually uh, and, and so on. But that can be done at a school like Vanderbilt in a sense because our classes are maybe 20 to 30 people. And that's not true of a lot. Of, I mean, the school I taught in before, my class was 100 people and it would have been too much for me to try and do something yeah, like that's true. That. I mean, you, you can't, know? I mean, no, uh, I'm not pick on San Jose State, but the way that you're going to deal with a, a survey class in uh, American history at San Jose State, where there, who knows, there must be 350 people in lecture hall. You're going to have to do something different. Um, you're going to have to figure out a different way of doing things. Yeah, it's it, and it's not to say, and obviously what we've learned from COVID is that online is not the uh, magic bullet that everybody was saying it was before we started, that this was the wave of the future and so on. I think it, it had some benefits, but I think it had a lot of um, well, a lot of problems as well. What um, you quickly, I, when the MOOC thing became a, a craze, what um, people didn't realize was there's. I think there's one at Penn uh, University of Pennsylvania, which was like a this really massively online class on like I forget what it was. And reading an article about it in the Philadelphia Inquirer, what was amazing was I think they were spending more time teaching it than they would have taught an in-person class, um, yeah. it, because they were dealing with questions from Kazakhstan and Moby Dick or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, well, if you want to actually have a good online class and foster good online discussion, you got to answer those questions. That takes a lot of time. Um, and uh, it's not it's not a money saver or a time saver in the ways that either administration or faculty th thought it would be. But let's go back to Dante. 
we got to close up now, um, close this conversation down. But before you do that, you, you, would, you were talking about Dante, and you were, we were also, I think, around the same time saying how, uh, well, I could paraphrase myself, um, that there are lot, hundreds of books written about Dante, but on close examination of the 800 books written about him, uh, 790 are the same. Um, they're, that they're oftentimes, and this could be true, but I often say this about Washington, would say this about Napoleon, probably Caesar, um, Jesus, I don't know, uh, other topics where people are getting enthusiastic for a topic, they get enthusiastic for a person usually, and they read the other books on it and kind of reproduce what the other books have said. That, I couldn't agree more. And it's, and it's also true of Boccaccio, who is more firmly in my period, who has really not been studied much, by the way. Strangely enough, he's been kind of ignored. But what, what the problem is that some of these people, like Dante, were studied you know, not long after they died. I mean, Boccaccio wrote a biography. Of, of Dante, and then you know a bunch of other people wrote about him as well. And what's happened was one thing I noticed in working on it. And I was interested in the notion of empire in Dante, which is a big topic as of about forty years ago. But now nobody cares. It's and still, my notion of it's empire, still really important. <laughs> yeah, and my notion of empire is that don't exclude Byzantium. It's very simple. I can say it in a sentence. You know, because they were operative. Even the people who kicked them out of the city, they had branches over in Byzantium. I mean, not in Byzantium per se, but in Rhodes and in and in and Cyprus and stuff. And they dealt with the East. It's not like they didn't know know what was going on. He simply decided he wasn't going to include them. And I have a theory of why. But I would only I would I would agree with you. It's that the problem is I noticed is that people use archival citations that were done back in the 17th century, and People made mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so these mistakes just keep showing up, yeah. you know, and we and one of the wonderful things about what we do for a living is that with each generation, we learn more about the past and we nuance it more. And then we can actually say things. I mean, it's one of those few things that, you know, endeavors in humanity right now where the people who are doing it keep getting better. Mm -hmm. You know, um, your generation um, is better than my generation and generation probably before us then is is even better. But we 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 actually provide new information uh, that wasn't available. Like in, in the case of Boccaccio, for example, I noticed that they they, they, they were saying he went on embassy to visit Dante's uh, sister. And I was looking at the citation and I noticed that the citation was from the 17th century. And I looked it up myself in the archive and I noticed that it was in something called a Belia record. And a Belia record only has to do with war, you know? And I thought, wait a second, that's not, I mean, the, the context of that, it was taken out of context. So, I mean, so I thought to myself, you know, this is something that people, people don't, didn't understand the period well enough to understand what exactly that was. And so it's been misrepresented even in terms of when it happened in many books. And the most recent books on Dante, certainly on, on Boccaccio too, I mean, they, 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 they have kind of from, from, a histori from a historian's perspective some basic misapprehensions. A lot of them also read history from what Dante said presuming that what he said was was accurate mm -hmm. you know and of course it's a poem mm -hmm. as my 
former teacher Giuseppe Mazzotti used to say, Bill, you're a historian, but you have to admit that it was a poem. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, even you can understand literature, right? Yeah, and I'm going, yeah I can. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, you know, I'm, I'm reading stuff for the Dante Studies people. I mean, and uh, like articles that aren't published and stuff, which is a real, you know, it's a, it's tough. To, um, but I'm at that point in my life where I read more than I publish, right? So, I mean, and, and you know, I'm reading things about, you know, Dante's attitude toward Lunigiana and stuff like that and how he thought of it as a special place and stuff. You know, you can walk to Lunigiana in two days, you know? It's like, it, it just, it, it amazes me sometimes how they have cordoned off parts of Italy and, like I said, Byzantium in my own particular interest, as if they're they're far away but and yet nobody wants to admit that you could practically swim from rome to tunisia you know what i mean and the, the mediterranean is very much connected you yeah. know we have an expression maybe because i'm a southern italian we have an expression that's called stessa faccia stessa razza you know if you have the same face you have the same race you know and i've had people tease me about being pugliese and the fact that you know egyptian slaves went there and i'm actually descendant from egyptian slaves and i you know kafaro sounds like pharaoh and all this other stuff and i mean it's like i I have to laugh at all of this because i'm 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 a pedestrian american right i mean that's all i all i am but the reality is that what people don't get sometimes when they're writing about uh dante and stuff is that these points of separation that they say you know this is you know the Cyprus is all the way here. and this, These places are all connected. Who's on Cyprus? The Knights, Templars are there. Well, they used to be in France, right? I mean, this, and, and even if you look at Italy at the, at the time I study it, in the northern part, they're all speaking German. And even if you go to Bolzano today, they still speak German. Then you've got the people in Naples. They're all speaking French. Those are my people, at, by at the way. Time. Just, to, just to, you know, we're not Egyptians. We're Germans. Up in Bolton. That's the Zamboni. It's just as you say, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I have, I have, a, I have a good friend, that, but, but I mean, who teases me a great bit. But I, but you know, the, the reality is, is, is that you're right. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to pick on the Dantista because they do a lot of really great work, and there's a whole new. Re- work is being done through archival work that's kind of reassessing who he is yeah. and stuff. And I, so I guess my, my, my only, my only hope would be, and this goes, this, and as it, we, I, we could pick on the Washingtonians, we could pick on a lot of people <clears throat> that, um, and we haven't even, we haven't even talked about uh, sort of dis, uh, the word argument and why it's a good thing, why it's good to have arguments yeah. um, and yeah. why it's good to look for it. But I, I would only hope that, um, that uh, our students would make arguments, but also that as readers, and most of the people listening to this podcast are readers of history, that they would look for arguments, that they and that they would expect that there would be an argument, even in a biography of George Washington uh, or Dante, that the that the person would be presenting an argument about what they're going to talk about. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just because it's a person, it doesn't have to be thoroughly descriptive. And again, I would only say that, you know, having written a biography myself, right, I would say that someone else could take the same documents that I used and write a completely different biography with a wholly different interpretation. I wanted to make it clear that this was a man who was incredibly clever. That's John Hawkins. John Hawkins. I mean, yeah. he was incredibly clever and outmaneuvered people and he wasn't really a nice guy and meanwhile if an englishman wrote it and and they have you know he was sir john hawkwood he was a knight you know he was a national treasure and he is a national treasure but we all have our own interpretation and a book really to me is not as interesting uh, unless and 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 as a historian i feel it's our, our our duty as you say um to 
give an interpretation to something, you know, and, um, and, and, and yeah, exactly. That, and, and I was, I was, I was keenly aware I was, I was sitting there with, I, I went to God, 26 archives or something. I had all this information. I was thinking to myself, I could just, you know, I, I, I could see someone finding another whole bunch of documents saying something completely different, contradicting me, and they'll be right. And the whole point of what we do is we, know, we, we, we offer information, and then someone will then take that information and then move it someplace else. And that's why I think when we talk about Dante and we talk about some of these, you know, Washington, very famous figures, I think people are kind of intimidated and they're a little fearful of kind of going in another direction with stuff. They kind of just assume that what they've read is, in fact, true. You know, and then it's much easier to work with, say, a mercenary that no one's ever heard of, you know, <laughs> and and then, you know, give your opinion. But I mean, there were books already written and he was, you know, a hero in every way. And I'm thinking, you know, he decided he wasn't going to work for the church because they committed a massacre. Oh, give me a break. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. massacres. I wish I could say the man was moral, but everything I read suggested that he was not, you know. Um, well, my guest uh, today has been Bill Caffaro. Uh, he's the author most recently of Teaching History. Bill, thanks so much for being with us once again. Thank you, Al. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, Wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.